0: In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. So begins the eyewitness testimony of Isaiah, son of Amos. The year is 740 BC. The year King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, and during that time Judah and Israel had lived in relative peace. Uzziah defeated the Philistines, the Arabs, and the Mennonites. The Ammonites brought him tribute, and Uzziah's influence spread to the borders of Egypt. Egypt had, of course, once been the great global superpower, but actually their day was over, pretty much. The rising power was Assyria, far away in the northeast, with Nineveh as its capital, The Assyrians were especially cruel, even for ancient times. Everyone was afraid of the Assyrians and the threat that they carried. As the new rising power, their only ambition could be to conquer as many surrounding nations as they could, subject the people to servitude, and to become rich by sucking as much wealth out of the conquered neighbors as they could. from 795 to 745 BC, Assyria was hampered in her ambitions by internal politics, arguments over who should be king, and by northern neighbors who were harassing them. And during this time, Assyria mostly left her southern neighbors alone. Five years before Uzziah's death, Tiglath-Pileser III came to power in Assyria. He quickly defeated his northern enemies and he took control over Babylon, or Chaldea, to the south. Once secure, he began to focus his attention on the lands to the west. The Syrian city of Arpad fell after a two-year siege in 740 BC. And to quote Barry Webb, the theologian, seeing the writing on the wall, the rulers of other states in the region soon began bringing tribute including Rezin of Damascus, Menachem of Israel, and Hiram of Tyre. All opposition to Assyria between Nineveh and Jerusalem was crumbling. Being a Judean in Jerusalem in the year that King Uzziah died would have been like being a Jew in Poland in 1938 scary times. But what then did Isaiah, son of Amos, see? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Well, I- Isaiah saw the king. Isaiah saw the Lord, the master, the true king, the one who really is in charge, who reigns unopposed, over everything, seated on a throne, the Lord of all nations, the Lord of all history, King of kings, Lord of lords. Isaiah was in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God had promised to be found, and as a priest on that day, no doubt he was going about some priestly duty. Suddenly, the Lord opens his eyes and he sees who it is who is with him in the temple, and he barely fits. Indeed, just the hem of his robe, we read, filled the temple. Robes were a symbol of authority, and the wing of the robe, the hem of the robe, was somehow understood to be the very seat of that authority. Look for it, and you'll see several instances in Scripture of the hem of a robe having special significance. Samuel and Saul, Saul and David, Jesus and a sick woman. Above him were seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Angelic creatures with six wings. Th- that They need protection in the presence of God. And they have been given it by God. Two wings covering their faces, c- covering uh, representational authority, the authority to, to see, to hear, to speak. Two wings covering their feet, authority to walk the earth. And, of course, these authorities are God-given, but in the presence of God, you lay down all crowns, all, all, all titles, all symbols of authority are surrendered to God in his presence. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As creatures, they were doing what all creatures are created to do, to give glory to God, to worship him, to praise and honor him. At the sound of their voices, the, foot, the, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The spectacle was overwhelming. Awesome in the proper sense of the word, Isaiah was filled with awe, a deep and overwhelming understanding of the power and authority that was before him. Then he cries, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And for five chapters now, we've heard Isaiah as he's cried out to others, woe to you and woe to those. And he'll continue in this ministry of woe to those who, etc., etc. But here and now, his cry is, woe to me. Woe meaning extreme sorrow, suffering, disaster, destruction. What is it about all this that has Isaiah so distressed? Is he concerned that the walls and the foundations of the temple will not be able to cope with this kind of architectural stress? Was the temple now apparently under-engineered now that he sees what it was designed to do? Is he worried the walls will fall over? Do they have to be buttressed? No, that's not what he's concerned about. Is Isaiah concerned about smoke inhalation? asphyxiation and the possible secondary cancers that might result from, from, from secondhand smoke. No, no, that's not what he's worried about. The threat to his life is not the power of God. The threat to his life is not the awesomeness of God or the size of God, but the holiness of God. In the manifest presence of God, Isaiah sees God in a new way and he simultaneously sees himself in a new way, and he sees that he is not holy. He sees that he belongs to a people who are not holy, that they are unclean or profane. And in the presence of God, the utter incompatibility of the holy and the profane becomes desperately, painfully, critically obvious. The two things do not exist and why one will cause the extinction of the other. Without someone or something to save him, the holiness of God will lead to the extinction of Isaiah. Isaiah's experience here is an extreme version of an extreme, extremely common phenomenon. Indeed, every conversion story, every testimony is likely to have something similar. Isaiah's experience is at the extreme end of the spectrum, suddenly having his eyes open to see with unmistakable clarity a reality he was otherwise uh, unaware of. But, But all Christians, all Christians in one way or another have had experiences of encountering the holiness of God and in such moments understanding themselves in a new way and god in a new way and the need for salvation in a new way perhaps they were perhaps they were reading the bible perhaps they were just cleaning their nets when this guy rocks up perhaps they were listening to a preacher although isaiah son of amos was a priest of the tribe of levi a member of the royal council indeed. Undoubtedly, he was somebody who was considered to be highly respectable, an example to others. Now, in the presence of God, he knows he is just like everybody else. He knows he needs to be saved. A man of unclean lips. The point of failure was that he knew he wasn't the witness that God had intended him to be. He, he, he says things that he should not say, and he fails to say things that he should say. Failing most critically to give God the glory and thanks in every situation. And in any human context, we'd grade on a scale, wouldn't we? We'd compare one of us with the others, and we'd say, oh, come on, Isaiah, old chum, cheer up. Don't beat yourself up. You're doing better than most. And perhaps if he was foolish, he'd take encouragement from that. But in the presence of God, Isaiah understands instantly and instinctively that all of that is completely irrelevant. God is holy, and he is not, and the holy and the profane do not and cannot mix. And as a sinner, there is nothing at all that he can do to atone for his sin. He instantly understands that he is worthy only of hell, deserving only of punishment. What would be right and just is his eternal condemnation. Away from God... In the company of human beings, we argue and debate about whether it is or isn't right that God might condemn people to hell, eternal punishment and condemnation. In the presence of God, we understand that that is not the thing that needs explaining. What needs explanation is the miracle of grace. What needs explaining is that anyone might be saved at all. What needs explaining is that God forgives us. A quote from Sam Albury, when Isaiah sees a vision of God, he doesn't cry, wow, but whoa. God doesn't overwhelm us with how brilliantly like us he is, but with how disastrously unlike him we are. Isaiah is not responding to how awesome God is, but rather how holy God is. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And Isaiah has been saved. Isaiah has been saved by grace. Isaiah has been saved by grace through atonement. Isaiah has been saved not by way of his own suffering, for we can see that the glowing coal did not burn him. We will see that he continues to speak unimpaired. And there is much about this that is mysterious, undisclosed. But we can see that the burning coal came from the altar, the place of sacrifice. Uzziah has been saved by grace through an atoning sacrifice made on his behalf. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah has been saved by grace and this is not without effect. Uh, Isaiah is now passionate in his desire to serve the living God. Isaiah is desperate to be holy in the sense of being set apart for God's exclusive use. A holy representative of a holy God, the holy God who saved him. Refiner's fire. Isaiah has come through this trauma refined, ready now to fulfill his creation mandate, ready now to do the very thing for which he was made, to be a faithful witness, to use holy lips in the service of a holy God. He said, God said, "'Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes.'" Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Well, they're extraordinary words, aren't they? It's no wonder that when people read Isaiah chapter 6, it's so often the reading so often finishes at verse 8. These are extraordinary words. It's a riddle. Or rather, to use the Hebrew word, it's a parable but technically it's what we would call a riddle a puzzle that needs to be solved and several pieces of this puzzle come from outside of our immediate context but are obvious when we look at the old testament as a whole one piece of the puzzle is that human beings are created in the image and likeness of god we see hear think and speak because god sees hears speaks and thinks. We're created in his image and likeness. Another piece of the puzzle comes from understanding that humanity's problem is that we give ourselves over to idolatry. Notionally, the worship of statues, but functionally, the worship of almost anything at all that isn't God. Ideas, isms, things, creatures, idolatry. Statues have eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they cannot hear, statues have mouths, but they cannot speak, and they have feet, but they cannot move. All those who make them and who trust in them will become like them, says the Lord. Psalms 115 and 135 and various other places in the Old Testament as well. The consequence of idolatry is spiritual deafness and blindness. If we're worshipping something other than God, we will not be able to discern his voice, nor see what he is up to. Jesus said, I do absolutely nothing at all except that my father shows me. I say nothing at all except that my father tells me what to say. And when I say it, I say it the way my father shows me how to say it. Isaiah comes to the people of God with a message. Indeed, he will come with sermon after sermon. But they are caught in idolatry. They don't hear because they can't hear. They will reject the messenger and the message. Indeed, they will make fun of both. Isaiah will be a figure of sport for most of his working life. They will react to him with contempt and with haughty disdain. The riddle is the judgment of God. It is his justice. They have chosen blindness. Indeed, they will be blind. Understanding will be impossible for them, even though they have all the evidence right before their eyes, even though they've heard all they need to hear. The riddle is the judgment of God. The riddle is a curse from God. The speaking of the words themselves will produce the effect that it describes. It's astonishing, isn't it? The message will actually cause the hardening of heart that it describes. And in the rejection of the message and of the messenger, they'll move even further away from being saved. The preaching of God's word will move idolatrous people ever closer to hell, ever further away from any chance or hope of salvation. This is a curse. These words were given in order that people do not turn and are not forgiven. Then I said, for how long, Lord? This is an interjection. This is an interruption. This is a desperate plea for mercy. How long, O Lord, means, Lord, have mercy. It means you've just got to be kidding me here, as it frequently does in the Psalms. Uh, Isaiah understands exactly how fearful these words are and what it will mean. And the Lord answered him, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Well, God, God's answer summarizes what we've been learning from chapters one through to twelve: that there will be desolations and going into exile and captivity. The Assyrians are coming, and they'll leave the land a smoldering ruin. Then the Babylonians, they're also coming about a century later and they're going to take everybody into captivity, like a great tree that is felled and burnt. However, just like a great tree, a stump will be left behind. And in this case, the stump is referred to as being holy, belonging to God, set apart for God's exclusive use. And holy is the key word. Holy like God. Holy like Isaiah. Belonging to God, set apart for God's exclusive purposes, loving what God loves, hating what God hates. Refiner's fire. The punishment described, which is unavoidable, will refine a faithful remnant that will then be enabled by what they've experienced to attend to their creation mandate what it was that they were created for in the first place just as in this chapter isaiah has been forgiven and purified and now attends to his creation mandate so too for the nation that the nation will be enabled to attend to its creation mandate. And for both of them, for Isaiah and the nation, that creation mandate is essentially identical, the verbal proclamatory declaration of the praise and glory and holiness of God to the nations for the purpose of healing and forgiveness and blessing to the nations. Yes, the message is a judgment. Yes, the message is a curse, but actually it's also a blessing, a fantastic blessing. Those who hear this message and believe it will be saved. They will put their faith in the Lord, who is the Lord of nations and the Lord of history, in charge of everything and knowing the end from the beginning and telling it as it will be, and they will put their faith in him, and they will come through. They will know not to panic or despair when the Assyrians besiege them. And even though the land is left as a smoldering ruin, they will sit tight and not panic and know that the Lord will provide. And in actual fact, the stories are all there in the Bible. He does, miraculously at times. They will come through, and their trust in God will be increased. They'll know not to resist the Babylonians, but actually to go out from Jerusalem and to surrender to the Babylonians because they'll know this is from the Lord. And this is what God wants us to do, even though on that day their compatriots will condemn them as traitors. But that's what they did, and those that did survived and thrived. And their faith in God increased. And they'll know two generations after that that when it's time to return to Jerusalem, they'll know Isaiah spoke about this and so did Jeremiah and this is important. We'll go back to Jerusalem even though we've settled rather comfortably here in Babylon and businesses is thriving. Nevertheless, we've heard the word of the Lord and we'll leave. They will see the Lord at work and they will know what he is up to. And much later, many generations later, they will stop and think, should any other prophet come speaking the same message? You'll be ever seeing but never understanding, ever hearing but never getting it. When asked why he taught in parables, Jesus replied to his disciples, this is why I speak to them in parables. Or as we might say, this is why I'm talking in riddles. Though hearing, they do not see. Sorry, though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah You'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But, Jesus continues, but blessed, blessed are your eyes, because they do see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Jesus speaks in parables, Jesus speaks in riddles, as an act of division, as an act of judgment as a curse, and as a blessing. Except that a person is in right relationship with Jesus, following him, no one can understand, no one can see or hear. But if you know Jesus, you can ask him what the parables mean, and he will tell you. If you're not in relationship with Jesus, you can't ask him, and so you won't know. It's as simple as that. And this is something we need to understand if we're not going to totally misunderstand Jesus and his mission. He comes as a divider. Jesus comes as judgment, as a curse, and as a blessing. So then as judgment, Jesus comes as a judgment against a nation caught in idolatry. Not Yes, sure, it's not the idolatry of statues anymore. They were cured from that by the Babylonian exile. But it is most certainly an idolatrous understanding of national identity, a fierce, religiously-fueled fueled patriotic pride that led them into hate filled contempt for their Gentile neighbors and a distorted desire for a Messiah in the hope of a victorious king who'd crush all the foreign oppressors, and establish international Jewish supremacy. Against that idolatry, Jesus comes as judgment. Jesus' ministry becomes an effectual curse. Jesus and his ministry were to them scandalous and repulsive. And Jesus and his ministry continues to be scandalous and repulsive to people caught in idolatry repulsive to people whose ideas of God are shaped by their idols in whose image they themselves are being conformed. As John explained in his gospel, concerning the idolatrous unbelief of the leaders of the nation of Israel, John 12, he wrote, For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. John continues, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Jesus' as blessing requires perhaps less explanation. Jesus is, of course, the Savior of the world. He is the hope of the world, the light of the world, and there is none other. It is through Jesus, and it is through Jesus exclusively, that God is going to work, opening blind eyes, unblocking blocked ears, softening hardened hearts. But blessed are your eyes, because they see. What did they see? They saw that Jesus was the chosen one the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. But blessed are your eyes because they see, your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And, of course, most wonderfully, most amazingly, Jesus as judgment, curse, and blessing all come together at the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the judgment of God, the curse of idolatry, the punishment that belonged to us, to all of us, the punishment that belonged even to Isaiah, son of Amos. It comes to Jesus on the cross. And in a moment of blindness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Refinest fire, perfected by suffering, raised from the dead, resurrection and ascension for Jesus, vindication and all power, all authority, all right to rule, supremely and fully in charge. The hem of his robes fill the temple and all cry, glory. Glory to you, the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. For you were slain, and with your blood, you purchased persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Creation mandate, a kingdom of what? a kingdom of priests, just like Isaiah, son of Amos. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips, holy lips that openly profess his name. As a kingdom of priests, so too a kingdom of prophets, like Isaiah, son of Amos. Well, actually slightly different, but essentially a kingdom of prophets like Isaiah, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth saying, I'd be thrilled if every single one of you spoke in tongues, but I'd be even happier to have you all prophesying. First Corinthians 14.5 What does it mean to prophesy? Conceivably a very wide range of things. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge, words of instruction, Bible teaching, gospel preaching, evangelizing, leading better Bible studies, reading the Bible one-on-one revelations, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, praising and worshipping with musical instruments, with drums and strings and trumpets, speaking to people for their encouragement, comfort, and strengthening. But exactly like Isaiah, son of Amos, and with respect to every single one of these prophetic ministries, you and I will have absolutely nothing whatsoever to say except that we have spent time in the presence of the Lord, listening to his voice in the throne room, protected by the blood of the Lamb, in prayer. Nothing to say, or rather, nothing to say from him, nothing to say of use, except that we receive it from him. But as we worship the Lord, as we worship Jesus, he will deconform us to our idols. As we let go, the Spirit will reconform us to the image of God perfectly, Jesus, the Son of God. But except that we've spent time with Jesus in prayer, in praise, and in worship, we'll have nothing to say. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Now,